started Psalms, we're continuing through the, through the book of Psalms. We're in Psalms 58 tonight. Psalms 58. If you take notes, the title of, of tonight's message is My Judge, My Defense, and Victory. My Judge, My Defense, and My Victory. Psalms 58. So we're going to see in, uh, we're going to try to go, attempt to go through Psalms 58 through 60. And what we're going to see in these next three chapters, we're going to see an outcry in chapter 58 against the wicked and corrupt government of Israel from David. A wicked and corrupt government. David's going to cry out to God uh, because of them. And David, what he's going to do is he's going to look to the righteousness of God for help. In chapter 59, we're going to see a cry for deliverance amid the innocence of David. David's going to be in chapter 59 in a place where uh, he's being attacked or, he, or he's being sought after and he and he's innocent, he's faultless and uh, in light of being innocent and faultless he's going to look to the power and defense of God is that better? and then lastly chapter uh, 60 we're going to see a plea for the restored favor of God toward Israel. David's going to plead to God. He's going to cry out to God for God's restored favor upon Israel. And how David's going to do that, he's going to look to God as his help and victory. As his help and victory. And what does all that mean for us this evening? Because David, we see, even in the last two weeks, we're going through chapters where he's going through not just spiritual warfare, because the warfare is also mental and spiritual. But he's going through physical warfare. We're Saul. King Saul has sent men after his life. And we see that a lot of the chapters of Psalms, David writes when these men are coming after his life. They seek him. Right? And what does that mean for me and you? These three different things. What David's going to teach us tonight that as believers, our encouragement amid spiritual warfare is this. That we must, number one, trust in the righteousness of God. We must actually, we, we must trust in the righteous judgment of God. If you take notes, we must trust in the righteous judgment of God. Secondly, David's going to teach us that we must sing of the power and defense of God. We must sing of the power and defense of God. And lastly, we are to anticipate the help and the victory of God. That is our encouragement as believers amid spiritual warfare. We're going to trust in the righteous judgment of God. We're going to sing of the power and defense of God. And we're going to anticipate the help and the victory of God for our lives. Chapter 58 says this. And again, chapter 58 is an outcry against wicked and corrupt government. Wicked and corrupt government. How timely is this chapter for the times that we're living in in this country right now? It's an outcry against wicked and corrupt government of Israel. And look what happens here. Do you indeed speak righteousness, you silent ones? Do you judge out uprightly, you sons of men? No. In heart you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth, David says. So what happens in verse 1 and 2? David directs this psalm to rulers or judges in his time. Possibly to Saul's leadership who were seeking after him condemning him to death or to the death sentence as a traitor. They claimed, him, they claimed him a traitor and they assigned him or they gave him the death sentence and they're seeking after his life. 
And what does he say in verse 1? Do you indeed speak righteousness? And what does he call these rulers? You silent ones? Instead of speaking up, why were they silent? Because instead of speaking up for the innocent, like David, he was innocent. These leaders remained silent. You silent ones, he calls them. They did not speak up for the right course of action when evil was being planned by Saul, right? Go and look for David, kill him. They did not speak up. They were silent, the silent ones. And often speaking up against evil is not good if you want to keep your position or power in government, right? We see that today in our country, in our local and federal government, right? That these men and women, they don't speak up. And, and, and maybe because what was once right is now wrong, what was once wrong is now right, right? As we look at it, and what does James tell us? As we just finished the book of James on Sunday mornings, James chapter 4, verse 17, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. So to these silent ones, because they did not speak up against evil, it is a sin against them, a sin of omission. And then he says, do you speak righteousness? Do you indeed, indeed speak righteousness? You silent ones. He asked them a mocking question to challenge their leadership, their decision-making to uphold righteousness. Do you indeed even uphold righteousness, you judges? Do you do this? Right? Do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? He's mocking and challenging their leadership in government, which I think that somebody and that many of us should do to our leaders today. Right? Think about our local and federal governing branches, how their leadership and judgment need to be challenged. The, 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 and, and he says to them, do you judge uprightly, you sons of men? Meaning you're just like, you're just like me. You came out of your mother like I came out of mine. We're just ordinary men. Do you judge uprightly? Do you think that, that you're holy or righteous or that you're able to judge according to the law, he tells them? And then what happens in verse 2? No, he answers the question himself. In heart, you work wickedness. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. What does David do? First, he asks he asked, uh, questions regarding their lack of words, their silence, and ability to judge. Now he challenges their actions and intentions in verse 2. He says, in heart, you work wickedness. In their heart, their motive is evil. It is evident and seen in how they weigh out their hands. That's what he says. You weigh out the violence of your hands in the earth. And that's how you know that in their heart, their motive is evil. Their intent is evil. It's seen in how they weigh out the violence of their hands. What does it mean to weigh out? It's to have careful thought and consideration, right? I weighed out that thought. There is careful thought and consideration. And what David is saying, instead of judging rightly this way by weighing out your decisions, by weighing out how you're going to speak up, instead of doing that, you weighed out how you're going to raise your hands with violence upon the earth. And he's challenging their leadership here, right? And then it says here in verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. Speaking about these leaders, they go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. He describes their wickedness and points out their problem of these judges, of these leaders. And, and how does he describe it? He says they're, extreme, they're estranged from the womb. 
the root of their evil hearts and motives exists because of the fallen nature of man, David says. From the very beginning, when they were conceived, when they were born, they've been evil, these men, from the womb. And as soon as they were born, he says, he understood that, part, that apart from God, humanity is sinful, including himself. Why right? We read in Psalms 51 verse 5 uh, a few weeks ago where David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He says, I've recognized this. I've acknowledged this. That from the moment we are born, we're born sinners. We're born into sin, the depravity of man. And he says, this is why you men, apart from God, you remain in that state of fallen nature. You cannot judge uprightly. You don't speak up, you silent ones. He says about these men. And the fallen nature of the judges could be seen from their infancy. It says that they go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies, verse 3. Right? They speak lies. They did not they did not have to be taught to be evil or to lie, just like a child today, right? You don't have to teach them to lie, right? You have to teach them to tell the truth. You have to teach them not to lie. And he said it's just, it's just like these judges. In verse 4, their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ear. See, the lies, David says, they're not harmless. The lies of these silent ones, these silent judges, they're not harmless. They're not innocent. They're like the poison of a serpent, he says. Their poison is like a poison of a serpent. They are like a deaf cobra that stops its ear. See, a lying judge then and now, right, has the power to condemn someone even to death, right? Lies can be used to oppress the innocent like David. I mean, think about the stories that we hear about in our very own country of men and women in our judicial system, in our prisons, that 20, 30 years later, they're found, to, they're found out to be innocent, and they just spent their whole life in prison, right, because of judges or people who speak lies against them. Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat of its fruit. And what is David saying that, that these, these men, these, these judges, they're poisonous, they're venomous. These judges are venomous and lie to carry out their own Agenda, And right now there's an agenda as they seek to go after David and kill him. And it says, verse 4, their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like a deaf cobra that stops its ear, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. He says they're like a cobra, like a snake. The wicked judges, they cannot hear. As you know, right, snakes, they don't have ears. They move according to the vib vibration of sound. They don't hear sound. They move according to the vibration of sound. And he says, just like a cobra, just like a serpent, a snake, these judges, they turn a deaf ear. They don't listen. They turn a deaf ear to any voice of reason, of proof, of facts. Think about today, the judges that rule our country and governor and presidents, right, and vice president. They turn a deaf ear to any voice of reason and facts and proof. He says, it's just like the serpents. They turn, they turn away. And they're venomous and poisonous, just like the judges, right? They create a crisis, right? It's all for a political agenda. It just reminded me of what's taking place in our country today. He says, David, David says they create a crisis by lying. That's why it says in verse 3, they go astray as soon as they are born speaking lies. Speaking lies. To do what? To carry forth an agenda as wicked judges and rulers, 
right? They create a crisis by lies and then present an answer to the problem in order that they can accomplish their wickedness. They ruin what they infect, David says. They're poisonous, venomous. And then in verse 6 to verse 8, it's funny because he now suggests to God a solution for these judges. And he says, break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away as waters which run continually, which he bends in his bow. Let his arrows be if cut in pieces. Let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not be seen, that they may not see the sun. What does David do? He suggests a solution for the wickedness of the judges. He calls upon their ruin. He calls upon the ruin. How does he start there in verse 6? Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Right? He prays a prayer of vengeance that God would break their teeth and break out their fangs. Right? The snake and lions. Right? He, said, he calls them snakes and then he calls them lions. He says, break out the fangs out of their mouths. Because a snake and a lion both, right? Their power is in their bite. Their power is in their fangs. What David is praying is... He's praying that these wicked rulers will be diminished of their power. Just like if you were to take the fangs out of a lion or out of a snake, they're now powerless. He says, well, diminish the power of these rulers, or God. Break their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. That they would be completely powerless and run away because they are defenseless. This is the prayer of David. That's what it says in verse 7, that they would flow away as waters which run continually, that they would run away because they're defenseless, because you have broken their teeth, because you have broken their fangs. And when they bend his bow, his arrows be cut, be as if cut in pieces, meaning con con just con completely strip them of their power and resources, these wicked rulers. Right? And then what does he say in verse 8? Let them be like a snail, which melts away as it goes. Like a snail. He says, let them be like a snail, which seems to melt, right, as it leaves a slimy trail. See, David is, we have to remember that the Psalms are poetry. They're a picture that David writes. He might be picturing a snail, and as it's going, it's leaving a slimy trail. He says, Lord, leave them like a snail, which seems like it's melting away. Right? These enemies, it melts away as it goes, he says. It seems to melt away as it leaves a slimy trail. David prays for a complete removal of these men in power, is what he's saying. Melt them away. And then he says, like a stillborn child of a woman, that they may not see the sun. Why, why is he praying this against them, these, these wicked rulers? Because they exist to bring wickedness and venom. Because of their evil heart. So David prays for their death. Right? That's what we read in verses 1 through 4. The wickedness that exists in their heart and how they speak lies. And how they keep silent of evil. Instead of speaking up and, and, and making a righteous stand. They keep silent. So David says, you know what? Like a miscarriage. He wishes that these judges had not been born. Or that their plans would not come to pass. May they not see the sun. He says, just like a miscarriage. These wicked rulers, oh God. And notice this about these verses. This is not a Christian prayer. This is David's prayer. This is not a Christian prayer. If you go to the New Testament, you're going to see different, right? Jesus, on the Sermon of the Mount, what does he say? Matthew 5, verse 44. 
But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is not a Christian prayer, David's prayer. But this is him speaking out of right anger and, and, and out of righteous anger, yes. But the things that, he, that he's praying for are not righteous. If you go over to the New Testament, right, what does Jesus say? Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, right? Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. But I appreciate David's prayer because I'm the same way. Knock their teeth in, oh God. But hey, but that is not a Christian prayer. We have to make note of that. It's not. It's not. And then look what it says in verse 9. Before your pots can feel the burning thorns, he shall take them away as with a whirlwind. As in his living burning wrath. Verse 9 is a picture, right, of burning thorns under a pot that's cooking. See how fast burning thorns will burn and then diminish and, and, and go away. It's like burning a piece of paper today and how fast the flame devours it. So that's what David's picturing, some thorns under a pot that's burning, that's cooking, right? And those thorns just diminish. They burn, they, they disappear, they're gone. And David says just like that, like these burning thorns, he shall take them away in his, as in living and burning wrath. Look at the, the, the anger of David against, his, against these wicked judges, these silent ones that don't speak up against evil, right? He depicts now, um, as we continue, the righteous. He says, the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, verse 10. Think about that. David depicts a picture of the victory. Uh, the righteous walking over a bloody field of defeated unrighteous judges. Why does he use this picture? Because David was a mighty man of valor. He was in the Lord's army, an army of the army of Israel. So David, maybe plenty of times, has defeated another country in war and has walked in the blood of wicked uh, of his enemies, of wicked people. So he's picturing. Then he says, "Lord, just like I have walked, just like how my feet have touched the blood." Of my enemies in war in that same manner. He says, send the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. This is the picture that David has in mind. But then again, you know, again, this is David's prayer. This is not a Christian prayer. We should never rejoice seeing people suffer who have done us wrong. We should never rejoice when seeing, seeing people suffer, seeing people even to this point, dying who have done us wrong. But this is what David was praying at this very moment. David writes from a prophetic standpoint. Look what it says in verse 11. So that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges the earth. He is God who judges the earth. David writes from a prophetic standpoint, a day where God's judgment will be satisfied. This is what he's picturing here in verse 11. And at verse 10 and 11 says, the righteous will rejoice. Verse 11, men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges the earth. What is David picturing here? What is he predicting as a prophetic psalm? There's a time that's coming that God will judge all the evil and the earth. And we will rejoice, his people, his church, his bride, we will rejoice because he will be glorified and he will put evil to rest. 
not because his enemies are trampled, not because these people who have done us wrong are now dead or destroyed. That's not where the joy, rejoicing stands. But because wickedness has been put to rest, God can be glorified now. Holiness is exalted and magnified. And he says, for this reason, this is the reward of the righteous. Surely he is God who judges the earth. Right? We read about in Romans 18 verse 20, speaking of God who destroys an empire of evil nations, a governing system that comes against him in the end times. And it says, Revelation verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you hold the apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. This is the reward of the righteous, that their trust is in the righteous judgment of God against judges, rulers, governors, and all the earth. In putting evil to rest, holiness will be magnified and God will glorify himself. David is now predicting. He's looking here to the future and he says there's going to be a time that's coming where the nations of the world are going to rise up against uh, the Lord and the Lord's army. Right? This, this empire, this new world order. And it says in, in Revelation that, Oh heaven, you are holy apostles and prophets. Rejoice over her. For God has avenged you. On her, meaning God has finally done away with wickedness. He's put evil to rest. And because evil has been put to rest, holiness is magnified and God will glorify himself. And this is how we can rejoice, the believer. So what do we learn in chapter 58? That we must put our trust in the righteous judgment of God. When we're going through spiritual warfare, when we feel that we're, re that we're being wrongly judged, right? When we, we feel we have wrong leaders, we're going through just trials and warfare. And David says, I'm going to trust in the righteous judgment of God because at the end of the day, as I look to the future, as I look at Revelation as a believer, God's justice will be satisfied, David says. God's justice will be satisfied. And now, the second point of tonight in chapter 59 David, amid again, amid warfare, he's going to sing of the power and defense of God. He's going to sing of the power and defense of God. And in chapter 59, we're going to see a cry for deliverance amid the innocence of David. Have you ever been in a, in a place in your life where you know you're innocent? You have not done wrong. Not perfect. Innocent. David knows he's not perfect, but he's innocent of what, of, of what these men are doing and how they're going after his life. He says, there's no reason for me to be sought after. And in his innocence, he cries out to God for deliverance. Think about this in chapter 59. This is the context. David is anointed king, right? You guys know the story. David is anointed king. And immediately following his anointing, what happens? He becomes a fugitive. He doesn't become king. He becomes a fugitive. Right after the anointing for him to be king over Israel, he starts running for his life. He starts to run for his life. And then Saul, King Saul, sends men to watch his house and then to kill him. That's the context of chapter 59. And then his wife helps him escape. And then when he escapes, they come and interrogate her and she betrays him. So his cry in chapter 9 is, Lord, I have not done anything wrong. What's going on? But we see that in chapter 59, he's still going to sing of the power and, of the and, and the defense of God. He said, Lord, you anointed me. You called me to be king. I've been nothing but obedient 
to you. I've been committed to you. I've been faithful to you. I have not done anything wrong. They're seeking after my life. My wife has betrayed me. What's going on, Lord? I'm faultless. I'm guiltless. But I'm still going to sing of your defense. I'm still going to sing of your power. Chapter 59, deliver me from my enemies, O my God. The wicked are... Actually, deliver me from my enemies, O oh my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O oh Lord. Look at that. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. Awake to help me. And behold, he says, verse 5, You therefore, O Lord of God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. What does he say there in verse 1? Deliver me from my enemies. Oh, my God. Look at the cry. Oh, my God, deliver me. A cry of help. But he says, my God. He doesn't just say, Deliver me, oh God. And all he says, deliver me, my God. David shows his personal relationship to God. And then he says, defend me. Right? The idea behind the word defend me in its translation is set me on high in your protection against those who rise up against me. That is where we get the idea of he is my strong tower. Set me on high in your strong tower. My enemies are down here. Raise me up. Set me on high in your protection against them, he says. Raise me above all danger. Lift me up to your fortress, your strong tower. Right there in verse 1, defend me from those who rise up against me. Lift me up. Verse 2, deliver me from the workers of iniquity, right? And save me from, from bloodthirsty men. From bloodthirsty men, he says. Why does he say that? See, David understood that he was a direct focus of assassination from the highest form of government, Saul's men, Saul's, Saul's leadership. It's like today's presidential cabinet is after David. He says, deliver me from these bloodthirsty men. And then he says here in verse 3, for they look, for look, they lie in wait for my life. They were sent to go and watch David's house and then to kill him. He says, look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me. Not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine, he says. See, David claims his innocence amid the trial. Have you ever claimed your innocence amid the trial? Lord, why am I going through this? I'm serving you faithfully. My, my wife, my husband, my family, we're serving you faithfully. I'm devoted in your word. I've been serving you. I've been committed to you. Why am I going through the trial? Why am I experiencing this spiritual warfare? David is claiming his innocence. I haven't done anything wrong. Not for my sin, O oh Lord. And through no fault of mine, O oh God. My God, he says. What's going on here? He does not claim his perfectness, but his innocence. There was no justified reason while his life was being sought after. He said, I don't get it, Lord. You anointed me as king. And ever since you've anointed me, I've been a fugitive. I've been running for my life. What's going on? Right? And we often 
me and you, right? We often feel wrongly accused, attacked, and sought after, having done having not done anything wrong like David here. And at the end of verse 4, he says, Awake to help me and behold. Look at those words. He says, Awake, behold. His plea is for God to be active on his behalf, to look and to meet him in this crisis. He says, Awake and behold. Lord, awake and look. Meet me in the crisis that I'm in right now. Because I'm innocent, Lord. What's going on? What's happening? Amid this spiritual warfare. In his innocence, what does he do? He does not turn his back on God. There's a lesson that we learn from David. Because one thing is to turn away and to turn our back away from God when we know we're guilty. When we know, we know that, we are, that we have fallen, that we're sinful, that we have committed wrong. And then we, we're experiencing trial. We're experiencing the consequences of our sin. And then we turn our back on God. And that's wrong, of course. But on the other hand, David, he's innocent. He's claiming his innocence before God. And he says, Lord, you've anointed me. I've been faithful. I've been obedient. I've been committed. And through no fault of mine and through no sin of mine, I'm being sought after. My life is being sought after. They're out to kill me. What's going on? And instead of turning his back on God, what does he do? He says, awake to help me and behold. Awake and look. Awake and meet me. In my crisis, Lord, in his innocence, he doesn't turn his back on God. He asks for the help of God. And so we see here, there's a lesson here from David amid the spiritual warfare, amid the spiritual warfare that we would go through in our lives. And then what happens in verse 5, You therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressors. Look at the name he gives the Lord, O Lord, God of of hosts, God of angelic armies is what that means. Think about that. God of angelic armies. Think about angels, armies of angels, military of angels. He said, God, you're the God of militaries of angels. And he says, awake to punish the nations. Do not be merciful to any wicked transgressor. His plea for his deliverance against evil. He has a plea, uh, he pleads for judgment against evil as a whole now. He says, look at the evil against me, and while you're doing that, Lord, being that you are the God of angelic armies, do not just look upon the evil that's being done to me, but in verse 5 he says, but don't be merciful to any wicked transgressor and punish all the nations. While you're at it, Lord, look at the wickedness that's happening in the earth, in the world, and punish it and do away with it and diminish it. Right? And then he says in verse 6, again, about these people, these men that have been sent to his house. At evening they return, they growl like a dog, and all go around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth, or they foam at the mouth like a dog. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? Look how he describes these, these men that have been sent to his house. They've been sent, it says, in the evening they return. Meaning they've been there all day. And in the evening they returned again. And they growled like a dog and they go around the city. Like they're waiting for me, Lord. In the evening they're still here. They're waiting for my life. Indeed they foam, they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For they say, who hears? What does he say about these men that the cleverness 
of the wicked and evil cannot be hidden from God. We're going to see that in verse 8. They say, who hears? As they foam from the mouth and as they growl like a dog, it says that he says about these men that they say, well, who hears? Who knows my motive? Who knows what I'm up to? No one does. But in verse 8, we're going to see that David says, but you know God. You know their motive. You know their heart. And what is David? He compares them to dogs. He says, these evil men that seek his life are like dogs. They roam around his house. They foam at the mouth with evil intent. And they think they cannot be heard or seen. What does it say at the end of verse 7? For they say, who hears? Who knows what I'm up to? But then in verse 8, what happens? But you. He says, but you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. I will wait for you, O Lord, his strength, for God is my defense. My God of mercy shall come to meet me. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. Now what happens here? This is God's response to the men that seek David's life. What is it? That the evil motive of the heart cannot be hidden from God, David says. It says that the Lord will laugh in mockery. It says, but you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision, in mockery. You're going to laugh because nothing can be hidden from your sight. No motive of the heart can be hidden from you. You will laugh at them, O Lord. And then he says in verse 9, I will wait for you, O, I will wait for you, O you his strength, for God is my defense. In the King James Version, that verse reads this way, Because of his strength, I will wait upon thee. For God is my defense. So in the King James Version, it reads that because of his enemy's strength, verse 9, I will wait on you, O Lord, for God is my defense. There's that word again, defense, like in, like in verse 1, defend me, or defense. It's the idea, again, of a fortress or of a strong tower. Set me on high so that my enemies cannot uh, get a hold of me. Set me on high. Set me in your, be my strong tower, be my fortress. It's the idea of, for God is my defense, or defend me. And then in verse 10, he says, for my God of mercy shall come to what? Meet me. Isn't that what he was praying? He says, you're going to come to meet me, O Lord. God shall let me see my desire on my enemies. My desire on my enemies. What is David saying? He's going to come to meet me. God is not afar off. Therefore, his mercy is attainable. That's what we see in verse 10. My God of mercy shall come and meet me. Meaning his mercy is attainable. The Lord is not far off. He's going to meet me in the trial. He's going to meet me in the crisis. He's going to meet me in the spiritual warfare. Amid the evil against him, he was confident that God would come to meet him in his trial. And then he gives us two titles for God. For any believer in distress or in spiritual warfare, God, my defense, my fortress, my strong tower, right? First he says, God, my defense. And then he says, God, my mercy. God, my mercy. Aren't those two beautiful titles for us to remember when going through uh, similar circumstances, when going through spiritual warfare, you're God, my defense, my fortress, my strong tower. You set me on high. And secondly, you're also God, my mercy. What happens in verse 11? Do not slay them, lest my people forget. 
Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride. Speaking about these men again. And the cursing and lying which they speak, consume them in their wrath. Consume them. Look how he's writing about these people that have come against him. Consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. What do we see in these verses? David desires that the defeat of his enemies will bring glory to God. Isn't that what he says in verse 11? Do not slay them lest my people forget. Scatter them by your power. Scatter them by your power. And he says, don't slay them lest my people forget. David is saying, go before me. Drive them away. He says, scatter them. Drive them away. That my people may see your power. He says, Lord, glorify yourself in this situation. As I'm going through the warfare, as I'm going through the situation in my life, don't just do away with it. Don't just kill them. Actually scatter them. Show your power so that my people may see your power on my life, your power on behalf of the nation of Israel. Shouldn't that be our prayer as well amid the crisis? Not just, Lord, do away with it. Not just, Lord, would you end this season in my life. But, Lord, can other people be can, can other people see the power, your power in my life and then glorify you and magnify you as you meet me in this crisis? He says, scatter them, lest my people forget, he says. Let them see your power. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For their sin of their mouth and their words of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride, against verse 12. And for the cursing, and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them. Look at these words. He says, consume them, and then he says, let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. He says, punish them so that they know that you govern Israel, not them. Look at that promise for us this evening. Punish them and let them know that you govern Israel, not these men, not this leadership. That's why we've heard it say, right? It doesn't matter who's president. God is still on the throne. God is still king. And this is what David is saying. Punish them. Let them know that you govern Israel, not them. The wrath that David desires for them to experience predicts a future picture of the wrath of God against the evil nations and leaders that have rejected him. What does he say? Consume them in wrath. Consume them. Let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Revelation chapter 6 verse 15 and 16. The kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men and the commanders. Speaking about great men. Set to the mountain and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the lamb. This is what David is saying. Consume them. And then he says. Let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Look what David is saying. You not only rule in Jacob or over Israel, but your throne is eternal. It's forever. This is our comfort. This is the comfort of, our, of the believer that God is governing, is over all governing authorities. And he is not limited to a term of, governan of governance. Right? He doesn't have a two, he doesn't have a four-year term. And he doesn't, he doesn't have a maximum of two-year terms. 
What does he say there? God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Your throne is eternal. You rule. You govern over the authorities that watch over us. Lord, his throne is forever. And then verse 14 and 15, at the evening, speaking again about these men, they return again in the evening. They're just consistent. In the evening, they return. They growl like a dog again. And they go around the city and they wander up and down for food and howl. If they, as if they are not satisfied. We see the continued aggression and danger against David by these evil men. The, he says they gro they're growling, they're howling, they're waiting until evening for his life. Think about that. They're waiting until evening for his life. But then here's verse 16. And as we said in this, uh, in this chapter that David is going to sing of the power and defense of God. But look, in light of all this, verse 16, but I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O oh my strength, I will sing praises, for my God is my defense, my God of mercy. Despite the innocence and warfare against him, David chooses to sing. I mean, you know of people that you've spoken to in the church, believers, that, right, you speak to them, you've served with them, and things start going wrong. It doesn't mean necessarily that they're living in sin or that they're doing something bad, but, but the Lord said that we're going to go through trials and persecution and troubles, right? And in the midst of all that, you see people who turn away from God, who step out of the ministry. David says, no, 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 I will sing of your power. I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning. He does not complain. He doesn't curse or turn his back on God. He was anointed by God, and since then, his life had been sought after faultlessly. He was innocent. But even then, he chooses to worship God. In light of the evil men growling and howling in verses 14 and 15, they growl and they howl, he says. He will sing of God's power. They will wait for him until evening, it said. But David was confident that he would be able to sing of God's mercy in the morning. He says, they wait for me until evening. But Lord, I already know because I'm singing of your power that I'm going to be able to sing of it in the morning. Because of your power, because of your mercy, this is what I'm going to sing about. God has proved to be his defense, his fortress, his, his strong tower. And instead of allowing his heart to be filled with fear, he chose for his mouth to be full of praise. This is what David does amid the trial. The enemies are coming against him. They're attacking him. They're surrounding him. He's in the midst of spiritual warfare. And instead of complaining or turning his back on God, and instead of his heart being filled with fear, he says, I'm going to open my mouth and it's going to be full of praise. It's not that the dangers were not great enough. Of course they were. They're waiting till, till evening. They want to take a hold of his life. So it wasn't that the dangers were not great enough, but David could only sing because of the power and defense of God, which was greater, which was greater on his behalf. Right? What does he say? I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense. My strong tower, my fortress, you have set me on high and refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, 
all my strength. I will sing praises for God again is my defense, my fortress, my strong tower. You set me on high, my God of mercy. In the, in the midst of his spiritual warfare, first in chapter 58, he speaks about these evil judges. And he says, I'm going to choose to trust in the righteous judgment of God against them. Because at the end of the day, we see that God's justice will be satisfied. In chapter 59, he says, you know what? These evil men are coming against me and all this evil and they're plotting to kill me. And amid all this warfare and as I'm running for my life and I'm sinless and I'm faultless and there's no reason for them to come against me. And even in all that, I'm going to choose to sing of the, of the power and of the defense of God for my life. I'm not going to be full of fear. I'm going to be full of praise. I'm going to be full of worship, right, is what he's saying there. And then lastly, chapter 60, he's going to anticipate the help and the victory of God. Notice that he's going to anticipate. He's not yet in the power and the victory of God. He's going to anticipate it. And in chapter 60, we see a plea for the restored favor of God toward Israel. David and the armies of Israel have fought against foreign armies and have experienced some defeat in chapter 60. And David knew that when God fought for Israel, there was assurance of victory. That was a given. Whenever God is on our behalf, we're going to have victory, David knew. And if they were defeated, it was likely because of their separation of God. So now his plea is like, we've been defeated. We must have separated from God somehow. And now his cry and his plea is for restoration. Lord, if we have separated, then restore us and restore to us your favor. In verses 1 through 4, he's going to speak about his defeat. In verses 5 through 8, he's going to speak about the promises of God. And in verses 9 through 12, he's going to anticipate his victory with God. Look what it says in verses 1 through 3. Oh God, you have cast us off. Look how he feels. You have broken us down. You have been displaced or restore us again. Look at that prayer. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. Here's a cry for restoration. David knows that God is displeased. What does it say in verse 1? You have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Lord, we know that this defeat, it's only because we've, been, we've separated from you. You're displeased right now. Then he says, restore us again. Restore us to you and restore to us your favor again toward the nation, toward our army. And he says, you have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches for it is shaking. What does David say here? He says, restore our defenses. Heal our breaches. He felt like the defeat of God's people had made the earth shake and had broken their breaches. He says, heal them, Lord. If God had shaken it, only God can restore and heal. Restore our defenses. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. Their defeat was hard to understand. His people were in confusion. They were amazed at their defeat as if drunk with wine. He says, what happened? Lord, you're supposed to be on our behalf. When you're on our behalf, we always have the victory. Look what happens in verse 4. You have been a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of truth. That your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand, and hear me. Wow. 
David places his hope in the help and victory of God. You have been a banner to those who fear you. Israel had been given a banner of alliance to God and victory because of God. You guys know one of the names of the Lord, right? Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner, or the Lord our victory. He says, you have given us a banner to those who fear you, David says, that it may be what? Displayed. This is a banner that we are to wave and display because of the truth, he says. As he anticipated the help of God, the banner should be waved for the world to see its truth, to display God's favor, power, and victory for Israel. And then he says, verse 5, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. Here David understands. He knew that the nation of Israel was still God's beloved. And he says, Lord, you're our banner. You're Jehovah Nisi. You're our victory. We're going to wave that banner, Lord. And then look what happens in verse 6 through 8. He speaks about here now the promises of God. God has spoken in his holiness. This is what God said. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure it out of the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab, Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia shout in triumph because of me. What does he say there in verse 6? God's word cannot be retracted. He is the promised victory over Israel. Look what it says in verse 6. God has spoken in his holiness, and then I will rejoice. See, God will rejoice in his lordship over Israel. And then he goes on in verses 6 through 8, and, he, and, and God himself speaks his victory over these people and places and land. God proclaims his special possession over the land of Israel. And what does it say now in verse 8? Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. What does it mean that here God is proclaiming that he will also exalt himself over the surrounding nations of Israel? He says, Moab is my washpot. And over Edom I will cast my shoe. He says, I, I'm going to be your victory. I'm going to be your banner. I am Jehovah Nisi, the Lord, your victory. I am your banner which you should wave that should be displayed because of truth. Then it says, who will bring me to the strong city? The strong city to take over, David says, verse 9. Who will lead me to Edom to take it over? Who's going to do this? It's a question speaking in regards to the future. And then he answers it. Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? And then he says what? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. What does he say there in verse 9 and 10? He says, who's going to go out? Who will bring me to the strong city? And who will lead me to Edom? And he answers the question, is it not you, O God? Here we see the, a confidence in the anticipation of God's help and victory. In anticipation, it has not happened yet. He's still in the trial. He's still singing of his power and defense. He's still trusting in the righteous judgment of God. He hasn't experienced a victory. He hasn't experienced a defense yet or the help. But in anticipation, we see the confidence of David. He says, you will bring me. You will lead me. He says, who will? Is it not you? 
he speaks with confidence of that which he already believes will happen. God will bring him. God will go before him and lead him to victory over the strong city. And he says, and you who did not go out with our armies? He says, is it not you who cast us off and who did not go with us and with our armies? He knew that Israel's defeat was because God had not accompanied their army. But then he anticipates the help and victory of God as his comfort. How many times in our trials, in our spiritual warfare, do we anticipate his help and victory over our lives? Or do we dwell upon the now? When is it going to be over? It's only building up. And I don't know who I'm going to go to. No, David says, no, I'm going to anticipate the help and the victory of God. Jehovah Nissi, the Lord my banner, the Lord my victory, he says. And then he says in verse 11, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies, David says. Look what David recognizes in verse 11 and 12. David's mighty man, mighty men of valor were not enough and useless when it came to their victory over their enemies. Do you notice that? He says, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. We're speaking of David, a mighty man of valor, right, who slayed down a giant, Goliath, who slayed down a bear and a lion. And he says, not even my mighty men in the military, they're useless if you don't go before us if you don't go with us lord says, so help us from trouble for the help of man is useless he says he does not look for a military solution or alliance right being a head of military what does he do he says it's useless that i look to that it makes us ask what do we look for in our time of trial and distress and defeat and amid a spiritual a warfare that we might be going through or defeat? Do we look to a judge? Do we look to uh, a friend? Do we look to, and, and all those things, of course, of course. But David says, I'm going to look and I'm going to anticipate the victory of God. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord my banner, the Lord my victory. I'm going to look to you because at the end of the day, the help of men is useless, he says. And then verse 12, through God we will do valiantly or courageously, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. See, alongside of God, we're going to do courageously. We see that the psalm began with defeat, right? In verses 1 through 4. But then it ends with the treading down of Israel's enemies because of Jehovah Nisi, because of the Lord, His banner, because of the Lord, His victory. And what do we see here in these three chapters? We go through that David, in all three chapters... In all dreadful circumstances and warfare that he goes through, he understood that he was to trust in the righteous judgment of God. He was to sing of the power and defense of God, and he, is, he was to anticipate the help and victory of God for his life. It doesn't matter what you and I may, might be going through. You, you notice that David's life was being sought after. He says, well, in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of my life being sought after, me being judged uh, un unrightly, I'm innocent, I'm faultless, I'm sinless, I'm going to choose to trust in the righteous judgment of God because His justice will be satisfied. I'm not going to choose to be full of fear, but I'm going to sing of the power and the defense of God 
And in doing so, I'm going to anticipate the help and the victory of God. I'm going to anticipate it because I know that God always wins. Vernon Grounds, a now dead theologian, tells a story that happened while he was in seminary in school. Him and a few of his friends were playing basketball at a public school near the seminary because it, didn't, it did not have a gym there. And as he was playing there with his, with his friends, they would go off and they would notice the janitor, an elderly janitor, waiting as these guys, they would finish playing basketball. And after a few times, Vernon Grounds' friend goes to the elderly and says, hey, what are you reading? I'm reading the Bible. What are you reading from the Bible, being that I'm in seminary? I'm reading the book of Revelation. He goes, wow, Revelation. He says, do you understand it? What does it mean? Says, yes, I understand it. He says, well, what does it mean then? You know, this guy's in seminary. He's learning. He's growing. And this elderly man whispers to him, the janitor, it means that Jesus is going to win. And Vernon Ground says, wow, I've never heard a commentary so simple and profound on the book of Revelation, we know the end for the believer. It means Jesus is going to win. Amid the trial, amid the crisis, amid the spiritual warfare. And there's two mistakes that we as believers, as Christians, make when it comes to spiritual warfare. There's two. One is that we give more press to the enemy than the Bible does. We give, when we talk about our situation, it just continues to anticipate. It's continuing to build. And brother and sister, you don't know what I'm going through. And it's all we talk about, the enemy, the enemy, the enemy. What did David do? I'm going to sing of the power and defense of God. We give more press to the enemy than the Bible does. And secondly, we don't anticipate. We don't look ahead. He will have the victory in the end. Amen? Let's pray.